You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Andrew Clark is the founder of Taiwan Impact Entrepreneurs, a group that serves foreigners who want to start a business in Taiwan. He spoke with me about how much you need to start a business in Taiwan and why Taiwan is a great place to do so. Andrew also talked about how he got started on his own journey as an entrepreneur and lost his eyesight over 15 years ago while running an export company. Today, he is a thriving entrepreneur thanks to the assistive technology of smartphones, screen readers, and smart glasses. He shared from an entrepreneur's perspective good reasons to do business in Taiwan and some of the challenges of doing business in Taiwan. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 and its mission is 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. 5. To reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you very much, Felicia. I'm really honored to be here. I thought that we could start by talking about what you're doing in Taiwan and what you're working on primarily these days. Yeah, so I came to Taiwan in 2005 by absolute accident. I was living in Thailand for a year and I had to do a visa run to Taiwan. And I came here on a 10-day holiday and never took my flight back because within the first 10 days, I think like many other people, foreigners who visit Taiwan, I actually met my partner who's Taiwanese and we're still married today, 17 years on. So I never took my flights back and I remained in Taiwan. I had a, at that stage, I was running an export company, which I had for many years. So me and my partner just carried on with a company and continued building that. And yeah, so nowadays I'm in Taiwan. I just, three years ago, I started an organization, more like a social group for entrepreneurs, professional people and startup founders. It was more started off as a social group because I'm blind, so it's very difficult for me to go out and meet people. So I decided, well, I'll just start my own group and get people to come to me. And that was the start of Taiwan Impact Entrepreneurs. That was my new baby. It's now a big baby. It grew up really fast. We've got over, I think, about six and a half thousand members there. It's very active. We host events every week, social events, networking events. We go for picnics in the parks, drinks. And we also host a lot of workshops, workshops nowadays and seminars. So it really grew into a business now. It's now an official business, actually. So that's what I keep myself busy with nowadays in Taiwan is running one of the, I would say, one of the most meaningful communities for entrepreneurs and professionals. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I didn't realize it was a business. I've seen the Facebook group and all the activity in there. That's wonderful. 
Can we talk about some of the success stories and maybe some of the people who are challenged and going through struggles that are in the Taiwan Impact Entrepreneur Group and what uh, resources they get there or how you've seen them grow and transform in the community? Yep. So we attract people from literally they have no idea what they want to do. Perhaps they're students or they might be English teachers here and really fed up with their jobs and they want to become entrepreneurs, but they've got no idea what they do. And we've got it all the way right up to people with multi-million dollar companies in our community. And I love a mastermind format. We've actually got a separate TIE mastermind group now. So we work on a mastermind concept where you tell us your problem or the issues that you face and let's all brainstorm solutions for you and get you, you know, actions that you can take on and go and solve your problems. So if you take, uh, I work with a lot of students. So even, you know, if you want to talk about success, even just getting them to make the right decision is entrepreneurship for them, or should they rather go and get a job and start a corporate career just to get them to make a decision and hopefully the right decision, but success in its own right. Then we get a lot of people who want to leave their jobs, teachers or you know engineers who are working at companies and they want to start their own business. Just getting them to make the right decisions and start following hopefully the right path. That's once again success. Then there are many other examples that we have where a person comes to us and they're running a business, but the business is not making money. They're really struggling to understand the dynamics or what's going on. So we will sit with a person, myself and Jamie Roof, my co-admin with Ty and also my business partner now. We would sit down with people and we would literally spend hours and hours with them over a few months. And we'll dissect their businesses and we'll literally rebuild it totally. So it's hard to quantify the success because we can't go and say, okay, so how much money did you earn before and how much do you earn now? You know, those are sort of private things. But just to see, I mean, just scrolling around on our Facebook feed. And if you look at the comments that people leave there, about, either about the group and how meaningful it is, but also how they thank other people for spending time and energy to share their experience and knowledge. And for me, that's what's really the success is the community acting and working together to help one another succeed. So this mastermind and this other, I imagine, coaching and things that happen, are those things that happen that are part of the business side that perhaps there's a membership fee or people need to pay for to be a part of that or to be in that, to get that kind of advice and training? Okay, yes. So we've got the two groups, the big TIE group and then the TIE mastermind group. So the big TIE group, which has about six and a half thousand members, that's a great platform free of charge. Anyone can join it as long as they're legit and ethical and, you know, they're going to behave themselves. Right? Mm-hmm. We moderate very strictly. Mm-hmm. Negativity, mm-hmm. no toxicity or any mm-hmm. no toxic behavior, mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. on that group. Mm-hmm. So very people can post their questions and suggestions and interact and engage and ask for help. And it's a very nice group. It's just it's too big for myself and Jamie and some of the other advisors to really have a big impact on specific people's businesses, their lives. So we created another group called the Mastermind Group. It is a paid model. It's just so that people are more dedicated and committed. And 
these are people who really want to start their businesses or build their businesses to an to another level. So it works very much on the concept of accountability. We put our tasks on a weekly and daily basis in the form of questions that we ask people, and they must complete it on that day or within that week. If they don't do it, they're out. Simple as that. This is a place where people come to really build business, their businesses. And it's working very well. We do online calls, support calls. I'm pretty much always, you know, if I see a message coming through from one of the members, I deal with it as fast as I can because I know these are people who really want to succeed. So, yeah, those are the two groups that we have. Are all of your members based in Taiwan? Is that a requirement for the people in the mastermind? No, not at all. You can be anywhere where you want to be. We are very much Taiwan focused. I mean, I love Taiwan and, you know, everything I do, I do in order to improve things here in Taiwan and help people who live here. But anyone is welcome. And as long as they follow our rules and stay ethical, there are certain countries where we would probably not take people from. Big Brother China. It's just more, you know, it's, it's, we're very proud to be in Taiwan and we love a country. So mm-hmm. that's the country we support. From my understanding, the mastermind groups that I've been in, this is very important to have ethics because there is a lot of relationship building, trust, and people need to be open to growing and sharing and doing a lot of work in the mastermind. Absolutely. We really encourage people to really be open and frank about what they're going through, especially like mental health and their emotional states. It's be open and be frank. So there's a lot of trust building because we can't help somebody if we don't fully understand the businesses and also the people themselves. And that often involves, you know, what's your mental health state at the moment? How are you feeling? How's your emotions? And so, yes, having trust and ethics and values and morals, you know, and enforce it strictly, very important. So that's one group where we have zero tolerance to any negativity. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Can we talk a little bit about entrepreneurship in Taiwan and why a foreigner should consider starting a business in Taiwan and then what kind of issues they might run into? Oh, yes. Okay. This is is quite a big one. (laughs) Yes. Taiwan's a great place. First of all, Taiwan's a great place to live in as a foreigner. Um, Taiwan is a really nice package. It doesn't have a Grand Canyon. It doesn't have a table mountain as in Cape Town, South Africa. It doesn't have, you know, it offers a lot, but nothing is like the most wowest you've ever seen in the world. But everything is at a very good level where it's great. The beaches are nice. The mountains are very nice. The forests are nice. The cities, the food, everything is is nice. And especially something like safety, for instance, I would say that's probably one of the things that's the best in the world. It is incredibly safe in Taiwan. So to live here, cost of living is not as high as it is in other places such as New York or London, but it's still relatively affordable. So for living, Taiwan is, yes, definitely a nice, very comfortable place to live in. Doing business as a foreigner, I would say the biggest advantage of doing business here is a foreigner can own 100% of, of a company. They do not need a local partner at all. As in Thailand, you need, I think, you need a local partner to have at least half of, half of your company or some, something in that line. So that's a huge advantage. 
it's also not too difficult to do business in Taiwan, especially nowadays with so many foreign companies here. Also, Taiwan is a massive producer of hardware hardware products, not just in the computer industry, but also in uh, engineering, like engine parts and components. So for foreign companies who utilize these, these parts, it's a great place to come and set up office. So you're so much closer to your producers, to your manufacturers. So Taiwan, definitely for business. Yes, the difficulties I would say that foreigners here do face in business. Uh, banking is absolutely draconian. As a foreigner, you will not get any credit card, for instance, even if you run a very large business for the first 10 years. If you want to come and do business here, bring a big bag of money. You've got no access to funding here as a foreigner. So that's a big problem. And another big problem, visas are an issue. There are many visas available. So it's fine. You can stay here for five years and then get permanent residency. But the problem is, for most countries in the world, you cannot become a, a citizen here unless you give up your citizenship from your own country. Now, I'm from South Africa and I know South African passports aren't very valuable, but I'm not going to give up my South African citizenship for a Taiwanese citizenship, which is quite unfair because Taiwanese citizens living abroad, they can get dual citizenship in America, UK, South Africa, Australia, pretty much most countries. But us right. as foreigners cannot get dual citizenship here. So that's a huge problem because you've got business owners here, foreign business owners who are running multi-million dollar businesses and they've been living here for 25, 30 years. They cannot vote. They basically, they, they basically second class citizens, even though they employ a thousand or 2000 people. So there, there are a few trade-offs for doing business here in Taiwan, but yeah, doing actual business, not that difficult. Right. Yeah, we actually did cover that issue of banking in Taiwan. It's not something that we haven't heard before. And anyone who spent any amount of time in Taiwan has come across yeah. this, unfortunately. <laughs> but there is a flip side to it. I mean, I've been here for what's it now 17 years, but I did live abroad for about eight years within that 17 years. And I just built up myself a massive credit record here by literally every month going and get my credit record from the government and then hand it into my bank and say, put it on file. And I mm -hmm. think within three years of consistently doing that, they started giving me credit cards and the overdraft and things. And now, number of years on, it's absolutely astronomical. Every time I walk into a bank, they're like, do you want more? Do you want a bigger overdraft? So it, it's you just have to persevere and convince the bank that you are worthy of having credit. It's mm -hmm. risk management for them. I want to say it's understandable because it's very easy for a foreigner just to borrow money and then get on an airplane and leave. And the banks know that. So as long as you can prove you're worthy of it, you can actually get it. But it's a long haul. You have to be into it for the long run. Right. And I'm sure it's advice like this that people can get from being in your community also. Definitely. Definitely. Yes, we discuss this a lot. Like all these problems, I mean, we see it every day in entrepreneurship here in Taiwan. And there are solutions and workarounds to many of these things. So you just have to be around the right people who have done it before to really get the insights into it. Right. And hopefully some of these areas in which you mentioned the banking and the visa immigration issue, there could be some reform going on. The government is pro progressively working 
on doing things. It's just unfortunately, it's very slow. Anything to do with a government in Taiwan, it takes a very long time. Taiwan is a young democracy, and they did not inherit the best system from the previous governments. So they are trying to change things. But yes, it's just some of the things are so draconian and out of date that it's very difficult to get it up to international standards. Can you talk about what role the Taiwanese government plays in businesses owned by foreigners? Okay, so this is a tricky one because you so often see government grants being offered to foreign entrepreneurs here. And it's all there. It's written out. Application forms are there. You can apply for it. Many times you never hear anything back. Or sometimes you are being offered the grant, but then they don't pay it out. There's a grant that was put out very recently last year. It was like one million Taiwan dollars. So a lot of foreigners qualified for it and they actually got notices back from the government saying, yes, your grant has been approved. And now the foreigners can't get the money. They're just not paying the money out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if I was a foreigner, I would not so much rely on trying to get government grants. Rather, just just make your own money. Build your business in such a way that you just that you just earn money instead of having to rely on government grants. Because this brings up the other issues. So there are a lot of foreigner, good-hearted foreigners here who start uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations or non-profit organizations, you know, for animal rescue or like we've got one for, we work with street children in Taiwan and, you know, people who support migrant workers. So they rely heavily on government grants and it is so difficult for them to actually get it. Some do but most don't. So it's also in TIE when we had to register it as a legal entity. Initially, we were thinking of let's register it as a nonprofit organization. But just all the problems that was involved there and how to earn money and how to you know make money in order to keep it sustainable, it was just such a daunting task. So we said, no, just register it as a company and we make our own money and we don't even look towards the government for anything. The government does, there's a new group that started last year, which is a Taipei city government funded. So it's not the the big federal government, it's a Taipei city government. They started an entrepreneur group called Taipei Entrepreneur Hub. So they're doing quite good, but still it's run by government officials. So they put up really nice events and it's well funded by the city government, but it's very badly attended. What they try to do is they focus on connecting entrepreneurs in cities around the world with entrepreneurs in Taipei, and they do live sessions, which is very good. I've been to a number of them, so it's always nice to hear how entrepreneurs in Argentina and Buenos Aires are doing, you know, how they are doing things there and what they are doing. But unfortunately, these events are very badly attended because it's government officials. They're not really passionate about promoting the events. That's unfortunate. It's such a wasted resource. It's all about the tick box thing. You know, the politicians and the government officials, they just have a box, tick boxes mm-hmm. of like, okay, foreign mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, did we do something for them? Yes, tick. Right. So the not-for-profits in Taiwan, it's a similar thing, right? People, if they donate to them, they can have a tax write-off? Yes, that's correct. Well, I'm very positive about the way forward. There are a lot of entrepreneurs here communicating with the government on the banking issues, the visas, 
um, residence status. And also from my side, for instance, working now with that Taipei City Organization group to try and improve their visibility and also to get the government more involved in what we are doing. So I'm hopeful and I'm positive about it. So yeah, let's see what happens in the near future. But I think it's going to be good. You mentioned earlier that you are blind. So you do also have another organization, Able Minds Taiwan, that helps disabled people in Taiwan. Could you talk a little bit about that and your life as a disabled person in Taiwan? Yeah, sure. So also when I returned to Taiwan three years ago, 2019, after being away for a number of years. And then I launched an organization that I had in Africa. I launched one here called Abled Minds Taiwan. The one in Africa was Abled Minds Africa. So basically it's focused on help teaching people with physical disabilities to teach them entrepreneurship. And then also to help them develop their own business, business plans and ideas and then to assist them with getting funding for their businesses. And of course, we stay with them for as long as, you know, as the business is running or as long as we can. So sadly, I launched Abled Minds Taiwan twice in Taiwan, both times running into solid brick walls because just of huge cultural differences. In Africa, I had it for 19 years for organization and it was very successful there. And so I basically thought I'm just going to copy and paste that business, that organizational model over to Taiwan. And problems that we ran into here is the families of physically disabled people are very protective over them. And what we were told all the time by a mother of somebody who's in their 20s or 30s, is like, oh, no, my son can't do that. And now for a short break. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to share that we have a donor who has offered Talking Taiwan a matching donation of $5,000. That means when we raise $5,000, it will be automatically doubled to $10,000. So this is the time for you to make a contribution to Talking Taiwan and help us raise $10,000. You can make a contribution to Talking Taiwan on GoFundMe.com, Patreon.com, forward slash Talking Taiwan, or PayPal and Zelle using our email address TalkingTaiwanPodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're old school, just send us a check to our mailing address, which you'll find on our website at TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support. All of our donors will get exclusive first listening access to my interviews with Robert Tao, founder of UMC, who in August of 2022 pledged to donate 100 million U.S. dollars to help Taiwan defend itself. Kevin Lin, one of the co-founders of Twitch and current co-founder and CEO of MetaTheory. The Boba Guys, co-founders Andrew Chow and Bin Chen. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who has been inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. And Michelle Huo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. We'd like to thank our first donor of the year, the Greater New York Region Overseas Taiwanese Pen Club, and all of our supporters. Now, back to the episode. I don't want to say it's a big problem. It's not a big problem, but it stops physically disabled people from becoming entrepreneurs because government grants for disabled people are quite big. 
as a legally blind person, if I was a Taiwanese citizen, I could get around 150, 160,000 NT a month out of a government. I see. So that's what, about five and a half thousand US dollars. Now, that's not all in cash because you get housing subsidy, you get the rights to run a lottery office, you can study for free. So there are a lot of different benefits, but if you collectively pull it together, it's actually huge. But here's the catch. The moment you earn $1, you lose your right to all your grants. So why should somebody who is physically disabled and living quite a nice life, comfortable life off of government support, why should they take the chance of starting a business? So that was a huge problem that we ran into. We struggled a lot to get around it. We did out of, I think, over 400 physically disabled people that we reached out to and communicated and tried to you know, work with them. We only managed to catch about 13 young students, people who were very independent. They want to create a life for themselves. They're at university. They study computer science or biotech, like really admirable things that they're studying especially for, say, a blind person or a person who's a quadriplegic. So we started working with them, and it's really nice to see how they're developing and moving forwards in their, you know, in their career, their businesses. I'm wondering if you would mind talking a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background and what a lot of people call as their disability origin story. Were you born with this disability or did something happen? And then how did you, how have you dealt with your disability? Very interesting question. So I had full perfect eyesight even when I first arrived in Taiwan. I still used to drive car and scooter here. Oh. And then just one morning I woke up and things looked very fuzzy in front front of me. And I asked my partner, did we drink last night? And he <laughs> said, no, we didn't. And I just knew something was wrong because there is a genetic disease running in my family that causes permanent blindness. But oh. I always tested negative for the disease. And anyway, so I went to a hospital that morning. I didn't tell them about the genetic disease running in the family. I just let them do their tests. And they said to me, you've got six months left. It's a very aggressive form of this disease. And oh, you've wow. got six months of eyesight left. And it was literally every morning when I woke up, opened my eyes, I could see less and less. It was literally the whole world just started, you know, disappearing. So, yeah, it was quite a tough time. And I just had to keep myself mentally sane during that because I was running a very large company as well. So it was it was very difficult. So, yes, so I went totally blind pretty soon afterwards. This and is about was, three years ago this started happening? No, that's 15 years ago. 15, oh. Yeah, I've been in this world for a long time now. Anyway, so, yeah, it was it was literally adapt or die. And the thing that kept me going was because I was employing a very large number of people. And, you know, it was not just them who relied on me to survive in life. It's also their families and their children and some of the employees were taking care of their elderly parents and supporting them. And that just kept me on my feet. Like, if I go down, all of these people are going to go down as well. So it was really just, I have to adapt. It fortunately was also the time when smartphones started coming out. And for the first few years of smartphones, it was very difficult for me because we didn't have things like screen readers, like what we have now. Assistive technology wasn't very well developed. 
but fortunately that caught up so fast and nowadays with technology thanks to technology i can walk in a street sometimes without a cane just by using i've got smart glasses that i wear on my head and it just tells me my whole surroundings around me describes it it tells me of any obstacles in the way so i can literally walk without a cane i don't use a dog at all a guide dog and things like using my my phone i can use my phone faster than most sighted people because of screen readers and i mm-hmm. use finger gestures and combinations of gestures and verbal commands to instruct my phone to do things i don't use a pc or laptop at all i do everything on my phone and i even do my own powerpoint presentations I can take photos i do video interviews all by myself So I wouldn't say I don't see blindness as a disability anymore. Mm-hmm. It's really how you as a disabled person how you perceive it yourself. But no, I don't see it, see it as a disability anymore. Thank you very much. That's very inspiring. Really wow. amazing all the technology that we have now, for sure. Oh, it's amazing and people a lot of the technology people don't even realize it's available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get people asking me nearly every day how do you operate your phone and it's like you know just a screen reader if where my finger moves it reads and it's really so simple and it's so easy to use it and i can see what's going to happen in the near future that the technology i currently use the screen reader technology sighted people are going to start using it because it's just so much easier and faster than actually using your eyesight to operate mm. your phone take for instance text messaging Text messaging on the old what was it called cell phones. Mm-hmm. Text messaging was developed for hearing impaired people to communicate with one another. It was never developed initially for sighted people. And I mean the rest is history. Nowadays mm-hmm. we hardly phone people, we just basically send messages. Mm-hmm. And I I can honestly see that the same thing is going to happen with the screen reader technology. That sighted people are going to start realizing how much easier it is to use this than to actually use your own eyesight. Mhm. Yeah, it's interesting. Can you tell me what your upbringing was like? Would you ever have imagined that you'd be where you are now doing the things that you do and where you're living in the type of work that you're doing as a young person growing up in South Africa? Would you have ever thought that your life would be the way it is now? There's one quote which my mom was a great business person and she always used quotes and I think it is a quote that she got from somewhere I don't know who was the first person who said it but the quote goes I did not end up where I wanted to be but I ended up where I needed to be and yeah if you had to ask me 30 40 years ago you know are you going to you know do you think you'll ever end up in Asia I probably would have said no I'm not leaving home so yeah I grew up in South Africa was born in the 1970s so that was those really depressing years of apartheid segregation it was the height of that so i was born and grew up in that system i mean like the schools i went to were absolutely 100% white you know nobody of color allowed and what people don't always understand it's like there were so many white families who were totally against it and my mm-hmm. parents were extremely liberal mm-hmm. And so we hated that system but what what can you do you know it is very difficult you're living under this dictatorship and you know there's not much what you can do so really just like growing up in that kind of system being told who I should love who I should hate 
who I can work with and not, and who I can respect and who, whom I must disrespect. And the day when I finished high school in South Africa, I left South Africa. I went and lived in South America and I did my studies there. Absolutely loved living in a new culture, especially a multicultural society. And it was fantastic. And yes, from South America, I ended up in North America, then in Europe. And then I lived in England for seven years. And then my long-term married partner passed away. And I just had to have a new change. And that's how I ended up in Thailand. And from Thailand, I got into Taiwan. So, right. yeah, so totally unexpected how things just went, you know, took my life on an interesting path. No regrets on the places I've been to and the people I've met and what I've done in all the different countries. It was absolutely fantastic. It sounds like you came from a family that did business. You said your mother had a background in business. Both my parents, I was extremely fortunate to be born into a family where both my parents were very entrepreneurial, very outgoing. My dad was in the medical industry, but he was extremely good with buying property, doing investments. In those days, it was good old stocks and bonds, it was stocks, bonds and shares. He was extremely good with that. And my mom on the other side, she was an absolute, she was a trader. She was a real street hustler. Whatever she could <laughs> buy, she would just sell. And the farmers in those days, in the 1970s, 80s, were being hammered really hard because of international sanctions. So the farmers were really struggling a lot. And my mom had this thing for always wanting to help the poor people. So she would go to the poor farmers and go and buy a whole truckload of watermelons. Then take me and my other siblings. We were four children within a five-year period. I'm the youngest. I was like four or five years old and then getting dropped off on a street corner with 50 watermelons. And my mom would say to me and to my other siblings, they each get a corner in different parts of the city. And she would say to us, you don't come home. I'm not picking you up and you're not getting dinner if that's not sold. And I remember being a young kid standing on that street corner and the sun is setting and it's like, I want to go home, but I've got a whole <laughs> mountain of oranges, bags of oranges still to sell. And my mom would get angry if we didn't sell it. But I mean, she was very kind. It wasn't cruel or anything. It yeah, was just yeah. teach it, teaching us. So from a very young age, I was absolutely surrounded by business. My dad made us read the newspaper, the economics section to him every night. Wow. He would just sit there in his chair and we have to read it. And then we would play games like we would buy stocks and shares, not for real, but just, you know, just for the mm -hmm. play. And then we would always see who's doing the best. And, you know, you have to go and research the things yourself. That's Those were days long before Internet. So it was, sure. all, you know, reading up in newspapers. So I was incredibly fortunate that I was so surrounded by all this knowledge and wisdom and my parents were married for 40 years until my mom passed away. So it was also I was surrounded in a very loving family, which I'm incredibly mm -hmm. grateful for, because it really what I went through as a child really shaped me in what I'm doing now. For me, it's, I want to help people who are poorer, who are not well off, but people who are helping themselves or trying to help themselves. And, you know, I want to be around loving people. That's why I always build networks with people I feel very comfortable in. I know they're meaningful people and they want to contribute towards the world. 
Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And I did listen to your interview with Paulo of Startup in Taiwan, and I think you said something like you've had business operations in something like 60 countries. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. With my export company, we exported agricultural products, also something I picked up from my mom. And we had offices in 58 countries around the world, all our own logistical logistic networks and warehousing. That was quite a daunting company, which literally just started from me picking and collecting strawberries and things in the fields and just built it up to something really substantial. And in 2019, I finally stepped down totally from all operations and management from a company. So that's the company that you were running when your eyesight started to degrade? Yes, that's correct. That's Really incredible. I can see why you have a lot of experience and background to draw on to be able to help people through your mastermind in this group. I can't even imagine what it must be like to build a business like that. There's a lot of business lessons I'm sure that you could write. You could write a whole book and offer people lots of great advice. Thank you for the kind words. Well, that's what we try. That's what we're doing with a mastermind. Because Mm -hmm. also my partner, Jamie Roof, He was in another very fortunate situation. He was executive assistant to Foxconn CEO Terry Goh for a number of years. So he literally sat Mm -hmm. next to this self-made billionaire 16 hours a day, Mm -hmm. writing down all his thoughts and insights and decisions and everything he had to Mm -hmm. document. And so we make a pretty good team in the mastermind because he can draw on the knowledge that he has of how a billionaire thinks. And I come from a very practical ground-up background of how to start a business as a single person and then how to build it up to where, you know, having employees of around 4,000 people. So, yes, we're definitely trying to get as much of our knowledge and experience out to people. And so far, so good. We're enjoying it. We definitely want to scale it up a lot more to reach more people. It's very interesting because I have talked to some people who have a different view of Taiwan and they actually think that Taiwan is too small, that it's a small market. And then when you look at the low birth weight, the aging population, people may not think it's the best place to do business. So what do you say to those people? I don't disagree. First of all, I would say every country has their pros and cons of what, you know, what, what will work and what, what would not work. Um, But then second of all, it also depends on which industry you're in and what sort of business do you want to do. So, for instance, if you want to start a Mexican restaurant and your dream is basically just to have one big restaurant, hey, Taipei is a place to do it in. I know very successful Mexican restaurant owners here or other restaurants for that matter. If you want to launch an app where you need 100,000 paying members to make it viable, forget it, Taiwan is not your place because there are 23, 24 million people living in Taiwan and chances of that you're going to get 100,000 paying members to sign up to your app is nearly impossible. It's just not going to happen. So it really depends on what kind of business do you want to launch here and what do you want to do with it? I've got, for instance, there's a very nice guy in our group who started a kombucha factory here and he is the leading kombucha supplier manufacturer and supplier here now that he's he's nearly captured the entire taiwan market or he's got the majority of a taiwan market 
and he's now perfected his production and his marketing and branding and everything. Now that he knows his product is working and it's acceptable, now he can expand to Korea, Japan. Mm. So for him, Taiwan was a very good place to launch, to start and launch his product in. Whereas, like I said, for somebody wanting to do an app that's going to go global, no, probably not. The U.S. is a better place to do it in. However, if you want to use the app example, if they were to market it not just to people in Taiwan, because, you know, anyone in the world can access an app. Yep. So, I mean, you've got some, let's say, some fitness apps where, you know, you want to first build a community around it, like a walking app. Mm, like, let's, okay. you know, let's get people to walk 10,000 steps a day. There are quite a number right. of them going around here because I I some, some of my close friends have it. And I see the struggles that they're going through because now they're in Taiwan, they build a little community, but it's not enough to, to get the app launched because they just can't get enough people in Taiwan to participate. Whereas okay. if you were in a, in a country with a bigger population, like the U.S., for instance, you're probably going to, it's easier to reach out to other biking groups or walking groups, fitness groups to get people involved. Where here you're very limited because like, for instance, with a walking thing, yeah, okay, if you want to get people in, in Japan engaged in it, it's a very difficult thing because it's a totally different culture. Maybe they don't like walking as much, you know, so it's, it's difficult to get people engaged. There are obviously very successful apps that do get launched here, but it's also far and in between. So it very much depends on what kind of business do you want to do and how big do you want to go yourself. Right. Also, I was curious because I saw in their Taipei Impact Entrepreneurs Group just last week, you had an event that was called From Startup to Long Game about creating a multi-million dollar business in Taiwan. It looked like a really interesting event. I don't know if you could possibly just distill some of the key takeaways from the event. Yeah, so we had two speakers up there. We were both foreigners. One person's a German guy started his company 22 years ago, and they now pushing, I think, about 10 million US in annual sales. And the other guy, I think, let's say American or Canadian guy, started his company five years ago. And he's now pushing about three or four million US a year. So first, what we wanted to showcase here is that it is possible for foreigners to build really large businesses. And both these entrepreneurs started from scratch. The German guy had a product company. They were doing light bulbs, LED light bulbs and equipment. And the other person had an online platform where they connect key opinion leaders with companies or companies with key opinion leaders around the world. So if I want to launch a product in India and I need an Indian key opinion leader, then I just go onto their platform and I can get a person from there. Both very, I would say, rather practical businesses, nothing super high tech. And once again, it was just to showcase that it can be done here in Taiwan. And what both of them reiterated was cash is king. If you come to Taiwan as a foreigner, you need to have cash. You need to be able to bootstrap your business for at least the first three, four, five years with your own money. You're not going to get assistance from anyone. And then it was just basic things of literally just persevere, just go through it. If your business can get past that five-year mark, then your head's most probably through. 
That seems to be a significant hurdle because you also mentioned that earlier in the interview that you need to just have some capital and some cash to sustain you in the beginning for the first couple of years or so. That's very difficult. If somebody doesn't have that, I don't know if that would be such a good idea to try to start a business in Taiwan. What would you say to somebody who doesn't have, like you said, bags and bags of cash to bring with them? Okay, so there is a way of doing it. But people don't want to do it because it's the fear of failure and also because sales is probably the part of business so many people run away from. Yeah, it's a challenge. I, I can go out on the streets of Taipei. And I can make a monthly income of around 200 to 300,000 Taiwan dollars profit a month on the streets of Taipei by selling cookies. Street hustling, you can easily do it and get away with it. Okay. Yeah, you might get chased by police here and there, but <laughs> you can make a lot of money and save up money very fast doing that. We've actually done trials on this. With, we work with street children who have been abandoned by their families, teenagers. So we do take the kids because we teach them how to street hustle. And we put boxes of cookies in their hands and we give them the techniques of how to talk and how to sell and everything. And you'll be surprised those kids are making four, five, six hundred US a night profit just with limited skills and experience and just by walking around and selling stuff. So my recommendation for if somebody wants to start a business here and you've never, let's say a person has never been in Taiwan, come and live here for a little bit, do a quick Chinese course and then literally just go and find things you can hustle on the street. <laughs> and save money. You, it can be done. And uh, yeah, of course, it's slightly illegal because you're not going to have a registered company and pay yeah. taxes. But you, you know what? Just go and do it. You know, <laughs> it's really not good. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that. I can really see that because Taiwan has a whole night market culture and the street vendor culture. So I can actually see that working. Oh, it's huge. I know a person here, a Taiwanese guy. But he's, he's brilliant in what he does. He also came out of very poor family and left school at the age of 16. He's now around 30, 35 years old. He makes around two and a half to three million Taiwan dollars profit a month selling jewelry on the street. So the guy's pushing, what's it, what's it 10,000, 12,000 US dollars. Mm. And he's just been doing it for years. He knows exactly where to go and whether police are not and everything. <laughs> so there's really, there are ways. And also the reason why I push people to go and, you know, at least try some street hustling out. You learn, you're immediately in contact with your target audience. You know, you talk to them. If you're trying to sell them chocolate chip cookies and they say, no, they don't want to buy, you ask them, why don't you want to buy? Yeah, and mm. get some feedback. Maybe they mm. will say, oh, it's too sweet. Oh, I don't like chocolate chip cookies. Oh, the price mm. is too much. You get immediate <laughs> feedback. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of street hustling. I actually wish I had the time to go and do it again. <laughs> I think with my white cane, I can actually double my income. <laughs> <laughs> Playing the disability card. But uh, yeah, definitely. People can make money that way to start, you know, to later on start a business with hard cash and bootstrap their way up. It's definitely possible. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't expect that answer. It's very interesting. I think we've covered a lot of things. Is there anything you want to share about what you're doing with entrepreneurship or Able Minds Taiwan or anything that we haven't covered? Something you'd like to share with my audience? Well, I think we covered most of it. And just to reiterate, 
once again. Taiwan is a great place to do business in. And I would highly encourage people to give it a try. You know, just be very open-minded and come and enjoy life here. It's, it's a wonderful place and I think it's just going to get better and better over time. Great. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Felicia, for the great shows that you've been rolling out and um, keep on doing it. The more positive publicity we can get, give to Taiwan, the better, because Taiwan really deserves it. It's really a great place. So thank you so much, Felicia. I've been speaking with Andrew Clerk, the founder of Taiwan Impact Entrepreneurs. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.